0: The only way you get 20% off is to go to com slash ETM and enter code ETM at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash ETM. Go to com slash ETM and use code ETM for 20% off. Student loan forbearance ends in September. That's like right around the corner. And student loan experts have all agreed the system is broken and needs a fix. There's been proposals of the Biden administration for canceling debt. Will that happen? Your guess is kind of as good as mine. Paying off student loans is daunting at best, but whether your debt gets canceled or not, there's a lot to unpack about how to balance student loan debt while also growing wealth. We're going to unpack it all in today's special reboot episode with Robert Farrington. You're listening to Millennial Money
1: with award winning money expert and serial entrepreneur, Shauna Come to Game, where we flip the script on the old school approach to everything your parents never taught you about money. Each week, Shauna creates a safe space by talking with special guests from around the world about money wellness, entrepreneurship, traveling like a boss, and what makes millennials tick. Unique stories, trailblazing perspectives. Tips, tricks, and everything there is to know about money. Find it all here as you uncover your money story and unlock the life you want to live. Pretty cool, right? Here's Shauna, money expert, Indiana Hoosier, and burger aficionado.
0: Robert Farrington has been talking about student loans for years over at The College Investor, is America's student loan debt expert, and is honestly my go-to for helping us make sense of this all. I get asked this question a lot. How can I grow wealth and invest when my student loan payment is draining my bank account every month? It's tricky, I know, and it's emotional and completely stressful. My MBA cost over $80,000 and there were so many times when I wondered, wait, is this actually worth it? The good news is that it can be done. You can build wealth and pay off your student loans all at the same time. Let's get to it. Well, this episode is, I think, going to be a great episode. Uh, I know when I was putting together some questions of what I wanted to talk to you about, uh, I was kind of rolling up my sleeve. I was like, okay, this is this is going to be a good episode because I know that these are a lot of topics that are really uh, s- something that you're super, super passionate about. So I wanted to start out with, you say the number one dilemma holding millennials back from investing and really building... Wealth is student loans. So I think we should just start there. Like, in what ways does having student loan debt hold you back?
2: Well, the biggest way that it holds you back is that paying back your student loans takes a good chunk of your income that you could do something with, right? So like we all have living expenses. We have to pay for rent. We have to get to work somehow. We got to feed ourselves. And then you got to make that student loan payment, right? And so that's disposable income that you could be using to invest in yourself. And when it comes to investing, the best thing you can do, and you've heard this in math class and, you know, everything there is time. It takes the earlier you start, even if it's only a little bit, like it goes a long way 30 years down the road. And uh, I know it's not fun to talk about compound interest, but it's a big deal. But the problem is, is when you're paying your student loans when you're 22, they take up a big chunk of that income that you could be investing with. And so that's the biggest derailer is that that debt really holds you back from investing.
0: And this is unlike What we're seeing happen to other generations before us, right? I mean, this, this inability to buy homes at a younger age or start families at a younger age, like all those trends that we're seeing emerge with millennials, this is different than we've seen in the past.
2: It absolutely is. I mean, they haven't released the numbers yet for 2019, but we're probably going to see this be the highest average student loan balance of a graduating class. And I wouldn't be surprised if it pushed close to $40,000 this year. It was like $38,000 last year. And that that number is just, it's a huge number because when you think about the average graduating entry level salary, you're probably making $45,000, $50,000 a year when you're starting out in pretty much any profession. um, of maybe medicine, right? and so it can really just eat up a big chunk of your disposable income and if you rewind the clock back to the 60s 70s and 80s um, college just didn't cost that much people still had student loans but you know they were getting an entry-level salary of twenty thousand dollars a year and their student loan debt might have been three to five thousand dollars a year so maybe twenty percent of their starting salary where today we're seeing that student loan balance be ninety percent hundred percent or you know heaven forbid two hundred three hundred of their starting salary.
0: Jeez. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) that's definitely going to uh, derail a few things. And I feel like with student loans in particular, there's no matter how much you owe, whatever that dollar amount is, and whether you don't owe undergrad and maybe you go back to grad school and you have student loans, like whatever the situation is, there's this real mental piece, I think, too, with student loans where it feels... Suffocating, you know is there is there a way to find balance with that feeling while maybe still being proactive with your finances like not getting lost in that that suffocation
2: you're you're not wrong, it is suffocating, and I think people just don't realize why, and I've kind of pinpointed it um you know when you have a, a car loan the i o u like the the collateral for that car loan is the car, right so when you're in the car, the car could feel suffocating, but if you don't have a car, you don't pay it that suffocation goes away. The problem with student loans is that you are the IOU. Your potential to earn, the money you bring in is the IOU for the student loan. And so it really is suffocating. So for me, the best thing I found and what I I found from a lot of people and talking to them is the way you can find that balance is to focus on earning more. And earning more solves a lot of the issues. And it's not sexy, it's not glamorous, but getting more (laughs) money in every single day. Really helps it, so it's whether it's side hustling, whether it's negotiating your salary and trying to earn more, whether it's picking up overtime shifts in your job, uh, you know whether it's selling stuff on eBay, like all those different types of side hustles can bring in more money, which frees up your budget to pay those student loans, and it gives you the freedom to start achieving your financial goals sooner.
0: I think having extra money is pretty sexy myself <laughs> well.
2: It, totally. I mean, I'm just saying the way you yes. go about doing it isn't always the sexy part, but having <laughs> it in your bank account feels amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, and, and you sort of transitioned right into what I wanted to talk to you next about was think you mastered this side hustle thing. You graduated with over 40,000 in student loans and you say you side hustled your way out of it. So tell me a little bit about, about this. Like, How did you do this?
2: Yeah. So I mean, I'd always have like the entrepreneur knack. Like I remember in middle school, I would go with my mom to Costco. I'd buy like the 24 pack of Snickers bars and then I would resell them at lunch break, uh, you know, and I would double (laughs) my money every single week. So I always just had this idea of like, I like to earn, I like to make money. And I just always been doing it. When I was in high school, I remember this, I was selling stuff on eBay. My eBay account was in, started in 1999, like right when eBay started. Um, I was reselling my old Nintendo games, and I just loved making money and so even through college, I, I would still go to estate sales and garage sales and I'd resell stuff and I started blogging and that, that's really how the college investor started. It was a side hustle it was a passion project. I just liked the idea I read I'd read some of those cliche articles about how to start a blog and make money and I was like, yeah. yeah. Okay, I could probably do this. And honestly, the website didn't make any money for the first year and a half, but I was still selling stuff on eBay. I was still doing other side hustles as well. Um, And then the website just continued to grow and grow as I stayed at it. And so, yeah, you're right. I graduated with about $42,000 in student loan debt and I was able to pay that off in about two and a half years, and that was a combination of working full time. My wife at the time was working full time, and she was she didn't have any student loans, luckily, and she was helping pay the family student our family student loans mine down. And I was side hustling and earning more money to the tune of about two thousand dollars more uh, a month that we were bringing in through my side hustles at that time.
0: That is really impressive. I I think having that. I mean, obviously it was hard work, right? You know, working a full-time job and, and starting a blog. But I think when you can start to see progress with your with your finances or your goals, like even just a little bit of progress, I think you stay more motivated.
2: Absolutely. And that's it. I mean, for a lot of people, if you were to make an extra $100, $200, $300 a month, that can be game changing for your financial life because when you think about a you know thirty thousand forty thousand dollar student loan, that's probably the difference of your payment It's pretty close right? right, and so like imagine if you could earn that and then that payment's gone, and then you have that flexibility in your budget and so you can do that. You can earn an extra hundred, couple hundred bucks with just a little bit of work every month. It doesn't have to take all your weekends, but if you put two of your four weekends in, you could probably make that amount on the side.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a great tip. So then, did you just decide, like, okay, I'm, I'm making some money with the with college investor site? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep at it and try to grow this. Like, how did you take it from just that, that side hustle into something bigger?
2: Exactly. Well, I mean, it was it's still it's a passion project. I really enjoyed it. I like money. I like side hustling. We we talked about that a little bit. And so, like, yeah, I just kept at it. I just kept growing it. And then I kept learning and growing and earning more. And don't get me wrong, I really liked my day job. So I, I was a store manager for Target. I worked there um through high school, college, and I worked there for 17 years before I finally left it. So that was a good gig. I really enjoyed it, but you know. it it wasn't necessarily my passion. My passion was entrepreneurship and earning money and investing and personal finance topics. And so the blog was also my outlet for that. So I loved creating the content for it. I love the entrepreneurship aspect of it, of, you know, trying to figure out how to earn money online, different things. And so I just kept doing both. And, you know, as I did it, I got better at it. I learned how to monetize, I networked, I built those connections, and it just continued to grow throughout the years.
0: I love to hear that story. And probably you got a nice discount at Target as well, which I'm super envious about.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You you get your 10% off, but you know, it's already a pretty good, you know, discounted store. So it it was nice.
0: Yeah, I love that. So if if somebody who's listening is thinking about starting a blog, can you still make a successful blog in 2019? Like, is this still possible?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's just like anything. I would say, whatever you're going to do, you just have to do. Consistently, and you have to do it for a long period of time. So, if you want to start a blog or a podcast or a YouTube channel or whatever medium you want to create content in, consistency is key. You got to do it three times a week and you have to do it for a long period of time. I would say three times a week for a year. If you could commit to that and do it at that one year point, I guarantee you that you're going to be making money, you're going to have some traffic, and you're going to have some success. And you're going to be ahead of 99.9% of everybody else that has the idea to start something. The reason is, is most people just fizzle out after two months and you don't actually get any traction after the first few months. You don't know what you're doing yet. You don't (laughs) have the skill set yet. And so consistency and time not only gives you the chance to build your following, but it also gives you the chance to build your own skills and get better at the craft that you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I love that advice. So, well, I'm curious, uh, making that leap into entrepreneurship, were there any moments or or lessons that you learned, money lessons that you learned that were a little sticky along the
2: way? Well, I mean, I probably want the most conservative path to entrepreneurship True. possible, right? So I side hustled it. My blog, honestly, so when we talk about it, I didn't make any money for the first year and a half. And in the first, so like when we get to year two, that I made seven thousand dollars in year two, which is great side hustle money. But like on the flip side, like it took two years to get to that point, and I just continued growing that slowly and surely all along. But when I say I was very conservative about it. I actually was making more money from my side hustle for about two years before I left my day job. Wow! And so I was just stashing all that money away and saving it because my wife and I would have conversations. Like we run an online business here, but like, what if the internet shut off
0: tomorrow? (laughs) Like, (laughs) would we
2: still be okay financially? Like, and then like silly things too, like, what are we going to do about health insurance? Like, this whole health insurance thing is crazy. We read it, we see it in the news, and you know, looking back in hindsight, like one, the internet's probably not going to shut off. Knock on wood, right? And then part two is like little things, like well, you just go buy your health insurance. It's just, it's just what people do. It Does it suck? Yeah, because yes. my employ- my employer paid for it for ten years, but like you just do it.
0: <laughs> exactly. But I think that's such a great point that you just made because you are an example of somebody who had this idea. You started it while you were working a full time job, and you. Let it percolate long enough that the, it, then it became a point was like, okay, this is a legitimate business. I think so many of us just want to like find that pot of gold and, and we leap before we're thinking. And then our finances are over here and they're like, wait a minute. What did you just do to me? There isn't enough money to pay for things. And then we get super stressed. So I think that's a great story of, of, of being conservative with it and, and testing some things out before you actually just make the leap.
2: Absolutely. And the cool thing is, is we live in this day and age when side hustling and side stuff has become more acceptable. But the thing is, it's always been done. If you went back to like the 30s, like, you know, contractors and handymen would work their day job and they would help out their neighbors and families for, you know, certain, you know, they get money, they'd get, you know, food, like people have always been doing this stuff. And so like, you don't have to live in this world where I only do my day job. Like you could do your job and then you need to find whatever is you're passionate about because I I would venture a guess and I'm sure there's a study on this somewhere, but probably 80 to 90% of people, their day job isn't what they love and are (laughs) passionate about. They probably tolerate it or they are happy with it. Like I liked my day job, but like it wasn't my passion. I was good at it. I liked who I worked with. I had a good boss. Like it was pretty flexible. So like there's a lot of perks, but it was still you know, still a job, right? I had to show up at certain times and do things. And, and so like it, having something on the side was not only like a way to earn money, but it was also like an outlet for my creativity and my passion and what I enjoyed. And I think, you know, some people, that's just a hobby. It doesn't have to be an income stream, but I think you would be defined that um, no matter what you have in life.
0: Yeah. And, and I think you made a good point too, that Let's say your student loan payment is 500 bucks or whatever that amount is. And if you could side hustle enough to cover your student loan payment or a little over your student loan payment, like you don't have to go in full time. You don't have to give up your J job, but you could find a nice balance where you're earning enough extra money to really accelerate those payments.
2: Absolutely. And like, don't think you need to start like an entrepreneurship gig. Like there's so many opportunities out there to earn now, like whether it's ride sharing or delivering food or, you know, all these types of the gig economy that we talk about. And it's not that's what I'm saying. It's not always glamorous. But where else do you have like the potential to bust out your phone at two in the morning and you could turn on an app and you have the potential to earn money 100% on your time with no boss or no other kind of expectations. Like that that's what's so cool about today is that you could literally earn money anytime, anywhere, on your phone, um, on your terms with no set schedule, none of that stuff.
0: And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's monarchmone dot slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. In those moments when money is just not moving as fast as your dreams, EarnIt provides the financial momentum you need to keep moving forward. EarnIt is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work. Up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. You just download the EarnIn app and verify your paycheck. Then you access up to $100 a day as you work and you can leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. I honestly would use EarnIn in lots of different ways, but what's on my mind recently is I need a night out. I need some good tacos to sip on a few virgin margaritas. It will really help the show. Talking money under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: We've all spent more time with family lately. It can feel like old times, but your mind is on the future, too
0: We've got an Ask Shauna, from Jarrell, and Jarrell says, Hey, Shauna, I finally worked up enough courage to ask a question. It's only taken me about 200 episodes, but I did it. So I know you've talked a lot about how you set a weekly budget and prepay your credit card for the week. I really like this. Can you run me through it again and how you set it up? I feel like a weekly budget is just so much more manageable and relatable to how most of us live. Thanks for a kick-ass show. Hey, Jarrell. I'm so glad you worked up the courage, and hopefully you see it's not so scary to ask a question. I know talking about money and money questions can certainly raise some anxiety levels, but we're all friends here, so I'm happy that you went ahead and asked. It's a great question, and I'm working on some episodes for later this summer on going back to basics and building a money foundation because... We all need a little refresh from time to time. Even me, when I'm preparing these episodes, it's like, oh yeah, remember? I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> but yeah, so my husband, Jeff, and I, we work on a weekly budget. And I found that it is, just like you said, really manageable. And it really helps us stay On budget. It helps us keep up with our saving goals, our paying off debt goals, whatever we might have at that moment, the weekly budget really helps. So we set a monthly budget always, but then we break it down into weekly goals for all of our variable expenses, things like food, gas, eating out, entertainment, like all those things that can really spiral out of control during the month if you're not careful. And then we put a set amount of money every week on our credit card. We use the Chase Sapphire Preferred card. This is not an ad for the card. I'm just a huge fan of this card. And we can build up points, which is a bonus for us. I'm a big fan of points, too. I talk about that a lot. I feel like if you can be responsible with your credit cards and pay it off every month, you can get all the benefits of a points or rewards credit card without any of the downside, which is high interest or those big, massive credit card bills. So I track how we are through the week, and I can look at this on my app. And some weeks we get to Friday, Saturday, and we know we're going to have to pull back a little. Like We're going to have to make some calculated choices. And other weeks, we get to the end of the week and there's a surplus. So for us, we run Sunday to Sunday. That is kind of our our week, but it could be absolutely any day, Friday to Friday. It depends on when you get paid too. So make it work for you. Those weeks when we have a surplus, I actually put that extra cash from my bank account into a special weekly savings account that's in a high yield savings account. We have one with Ally Bank, but Marcus Banks, Synchrony, Discover Bank, American Express Bank, all of these have great high-yield savings accounts. So I put that extra cash in this special weekly savings account so we can use it on those weeks when we know that we're going to overspend. So we kind of even flow it. You see how that works? It sounds like a lot of work, but creating a system that works for you is really key And the other key is just keeping up with it, making it habit. So for us, this is just habit. This is what we do every week. This is what we do every Sunday. I make sure that I check in on our bank account uh, with our our credit card every couple of days just to kind of track where we're at. And again, we do all this to avoid paying credit card interest rates, which I hate. But we still enjoy the benefits of the points that we either use for cash back or towards travel. There's Lots of ways you can use your points. But in my opinion, extra money is always the name of the game. If you're going to be smart with your money, you have to look for all of these little ways to leverage your cash in the best possible way. It's about five bucks here, 10 bucks here, 20 bucks here. It all starts to add up. So I hope that helps Jarrell or inspires you to come up with your own system for weekly budgeting. It's definitely a really interesting time. I think it's it's super exciting. And going back to student loans, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of talk, a lot of chatter in the government lately about different proposals and and gosh, the the just never-ending debate over whether whether college is going to be free or not free. I mean, it it's never ending, but Totally. I think so many people are, are scratching their heads, like trying to make sense of what's going on. So like, what, have, what have you heard? Like, what have you researched or what are you hearing are, are some of the things that might come down the pipeline?
2: Well, it's so hard because there's there's two aspects you always have to think about. And it all gets convoluted into one. But there's the people that are already graduated and have student loans. And then there is how do you pay for college in the future? And you kind of have to like go down two different paths of how you're going to tackle each situation and problem. And they're a little bit interrelated, but they really do have two different very fundamental issues that like they're just different. Like we have the student loan debt problem where people have all this debt, they can't afford it, and that's going to be the drag on our economy. And so it's really a problem because like we talked about on an individual level, it takes away your earnings. But then you aggregate that out, and when people aren't spending that money in our economy – We're going to have less GDP in the future. And this is when you talk about a student loan debt bubble. The bubble is you can't or sorry, you can't pop this bubble like you could pop a housing crisis. So like you don't pay your mortgage. Well, the bank repossesses your house and the bank might sell your house for 50 percent less and take a huge loss on it. But that whole situation resolves itself in, say, a year right? Well, the problem is there's no bankruptcy protections for your student loans. Well, there are, but they're very challenging to get to. There's no quick unwinding mechanism. You don't pay your student loans. Well, the government's going to garnish your wages for the foreseeable future. You make it to retirement, the government's going to garnish your social security. So This drag is just going to drag and drag and drag out. And so I think the solutions around student loan debt need to involve more forgiveness programs like you see with public service loan forgiveness. And the headlines that you read for public service loan forgiveness where only 1% get approved are so incredibly misleading. You don't realize this, but there's over a million people in the pipeline to get student loan or public service loan forgiveness right now. The problem is it's a 10-year deal. And so like those people aren't going to start getting like the bulk of these people aren't going to start getting loan forgiveness until 2021, 2022. I think there's over 400,000 people on track to get loan forgiveness in 2024 because they didn't start like it's very hard to start a program on day one that's a 10-year program and has very specific requirements. And so I think people just need to realize that we need more programs like this that help people get out of their debt, but they still have to give back. Like, I really do have a problem with blanket student loan forgiveness, where if you just make a certain income level, $50,000 goes away. I don't think that's going to be an appropriate solution for most people. And I think people want to see people work and earn it. So I wish we'd see something like public service loan forgiveness, but like, everybody could get it. No specific loan requirements, no specific repayment plan requirements. Like you work for 10 years and boom, like you get your loans forgiven. Like that makes sense to me. Um, and I could see that gaining traction, um, as people are looking at these programs.
0: Right. Yeah. I I tend to agree with you because I think if you put some sweat equity, and I know that's a lot of people who are just graduating, who have the student loans, don't want that to happen. (laughs) They would rather just have, you know, the loan like straight out forgive forgiven without having to jump through any hoops or go through everything that you need to go through for for the 10-year program. But I think it's encouraging to hear that the statistics might be a little bit misleading and that this program might actually be working but we just haven't reached that time period yet
2: totally well the the original like number of people that could have potentially been eligible in year one anyways like was 1700 people wow. like in the whole country because the requirements in year one were so strict and it started in October so it's like you're kind of saying, well, only 93 people like, got it out of, out of 1,700 potentially, part one. And part two, it's a 10-year program. So how many people of that 1,700 cohort actually did everything they needed to do over the first 10 years? Same thing. It's very rare. So it's like don't necessarily read the headlines. Dive in and see because it's really a strong – it's really a good program. It's working well. It's just the bulk of the people that are supposed to get it aren't going to get it for another four or five years.
0: That's a good point. And I was reading this article the other day. They had this statistic that Gen X actually, or Gen Z, sorry, Gen Z is leading the way on alternative ways of educating themselves. And many are saying no to traditional college. Like, Do you think this is going to be a trend that's going to continue to grow that the generations are going to say, we don't want anything to do with you student loan debt. We're going to educate ourselves in a different way.
2: Yes, I think it is. And I think it needs to happen. Um, I'm a big proponent of figuring out the ROI of your education. So the return on investment. So we need to teach our young adults today. So when we now we're shifting to that paying for college bubble. Right. So this is where there's a two prong approach. Like you have the people that you have to address that have the debt. But then we have to figure out how we're going to pay for college and or what that looks like going forward. And we need to think about college as an investment. So whether you're going to invest in your 401k or real estate or whatever, you want to see a return. Well, the same thing needs to happen when it comes to college, right? So if you're going to invest $40,000 in your education, well, you need to like, think about what career am I going to go into? How much am I going to earn in that career? Like, what do my long-term prospects look like? Like we need to have these discussions. And the cool thing is, is The the statistics are out there. You can go on Glassdoor and find salaries for every single career and see what you're going to make in your state. So it's like, if I want to be a teacher, that's great. Go be a teacher. But like, don't go and take on $100,000 in student loan debt to be a teacher because you know teachers only make $40,000. Like, It just doesn't make sense. A better approach would be go to community college for two years. And in many states now, that's free and then transfer to your state school, which is also very affordable. And you could probably get your teaching credential today for fourteen dollars to $20,000 in student loan debt. And now you can really afford that on your teacher's salary and have a good quality of life at the same time.
0: That makes sense. I love that approach. So how could somebody use that if they were, say, applying to grad school and they're already working in a career? Like, How would they use that ROI approach?
2: Don't. Like don't apply to grad school. No, (laughs) Uh, uh, seriously though. Honestly, grad school is a negative ROI for pretty much everybody. I'm not trying to be mean about it, but unless you're employers paying for it, go to grad school all day long, uh, you know, unless you need it because of career advancement, which you have the potential to earn more. But then on the flip side, you need to figure out how you're going to pay for that, that you get that ROI. Because I know there's some things like let's say let's go back to teaching, right? Like a lot of schools will give a teachers a raise if they go back and get their master's, right? But like, if that raise is only going to be five thousand dollars, and you have to pay eighty thousand dollars for grad school because you're probably going to take grad school um, as like one of those flexible programs that you have to do on nights and weekends, and it's going to take you like four years to get your master's, and you're going to spend eighty thousand dollars, well, a five thousand dollar raise isn't worth it. Like, it might feel good to get your master's, but like mathematically. It just doesn't make any sense for you. But, you know, sometimes there's office politics involved and different things that it could make sense to go to grad school. But for many people, grad school doesn't make sense. And almost every single person that you see in the headlines that is struggling with student loan debt, it's because of graduate school, because there's no cap on how much you can borrow in student loans to pay for graduate school. And so almost everybody that you see with like a million dollars in student loan debt, it's all because of grad school.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I went to grad school and got my MBA and it cost me about $80,000. And uh, I have just finished paying off that debt, but it was painstaking. And I had to do a lot of uh, maneuvering, we'll say, <laughs> to get that paid off. But, you know, I have so many friends, they're in their 30s and 40s, and they're still looking at huge amounts of grad school debt. And it's just, it's like this side appendage that they don't know how to get rid of.
2: Yep. And the grad school debt is the killer for people because it's the one that doesn't have a cap. So, one of the things that I do like to see is this proposal to cap student loan debt borrowing and undergraduate borrowing on the federal level already has caps. I don't think people realize that. But there is no cap on grad school borrowing. And this is where people borrow 200 dollars $300,000, and they just get themselves in a world of trouble because the ROI on those degrees aren't necessarily there. And the people that are getting the ROI to go to grad school are typically getting those paid for by employers or by other means. You know, Maybe they're going to uh, you know, be a, you know, some type of in the sciences, right? right? Well, they're also probably getting a fellowship and they're probably working as a research assistant at the university and that's covering some of the costs of going to grad school. And you know, there's a lot of other ways around it, but paying for grad school on just by yourself it is really 98% of the time a very poor investment.
0: I like that. That's good wisdom. So let's say that I'm listening, I'm sitting here with with student loan debt. Like, What two or three wealth building steps do you think I should be incorporating while I'm also shrinking my debt? Are there other things that I should be thinking about while I'm also focused on that?
2: Yes. So if you're earning more and you're focused on your debt, you should also be investing. So striking this financial balance is huge because you, know, you also never get your 20s back, right? So if, even if you could only put $1,000 away a year in your 20s, that can go a long way in the future. And there's ways to do it that really don't hurt you. Like if you get an employer match in your 401k, or a lot of employers now are offering like matches to your health savings account, if you have one of those, like take advantage of that free money and then let it grow, let it invest over time into the future. So that's definitely one of the things that you should do, um, even while you're paying down that student loan debt.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. Like take advantage of all that free money you can get.
2: (laughs) Definitely. And then the other thing I would say is really look at your biggest expenses. So I'm not a huge budgeting guy. Like I'm a big earn more, earn more, earn more. But there's two common themes I see with everyone's biggest expenses. It's housing and transportation. And the cool thing is, is we live in this day and age where both of those are hackable, quote unquote, and there's ways to save big time on those. And if you can lower your housing costs or your transportation costs by a good percentage, like that's all money that comes back in your budget. So it might not be glamorous, but live with roommates until you're 30 or, you know, maybe at least a few years out of college, like continue that dorm lifestyle so that you could save money on housing, transportation. Like, do you really need a car? If you have a car, could you get a really cheap old one or could ride sharing work or in many big cities now there's bird scooters and, you know, public transportation? Like, could you put those together to significantly save on your transportation expenses? Because for most people, those are the biggest. And if you can save there, you could take that money right back into your budget.
0: Yeah. And I know it doesn't sound glamorous or fun or sexy. We have a a friend who is, they're married and they have a young son who's one and they had the opportunity to move back in with his parents for a couple of years to save money. And and his mom was going to actually babysit so they wouldn't have to have daycare costs. And they sat down with me and they're like, well, you know, we want to do it, but we don't really want to live with our parents. I'm like, when I showed them the math behind it, how much money they were able to save and pay off debt, it was just, I mean, their eyes just blew up. Like, how could we not do this? And so I think making those sacrifices, sometimes it really will set you up for the future. When you're five years down the line, you're not even going to remember that Absolutely,
2: much. <laughs> no. You are so right, and you know what the bigger thing is? Is it psychological? Like it's not that these people don't know it, but I think people get embarrassed. What will my friends think? Like what will my family think? Like what will my coworkers think that I still live at home? And like you know, like all this stuff. But you want to know what? Five years down the road, like you said, when you're debt-free and you can afford to buy the house and the car you want because you live like that for five years, all your coworkers and your friends are going to be like, damn, that's awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love it. Well, before, thing, before we close things out, I want to do a little lightning round with you if you're, if you're up for it.
2: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay. So what is your favorite city in the world?
2: I actually live here. So San Diego is probably my favorite city in the world. Um, Granted, I have not been to Europe yet. So it's on my bucket list. So maybe that'll change. But in the United States and uh, places I've gone, San Diego is the top of my list.
0: Yeah. San Diego is pretty cool. I'm just up the coast from you in LA, but I, I definitely admire San Diego. So if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be?
2: Mm, one meal. So uh, I am a steak guy. So I would love to just have like filet mignon. Hopefully we can mix the sides up a little <laughs> bit um, If it's for the rest of my life, but uh, I, I could probably live with that.
0: I love it. That's great. Okay. The last one. So fill in the blank. So money doesn't what?
2: Money truly doesn't buy happiness. Uh, you know, and I see this a lot. We've actually had some really interesting conversations in the, um, online lately. Uh, Ramit has a new book out. I will teach you to re-rich on a new book. It's 10 years old now. And there's a lot of bloggers talking about fire and doesn't make you happy and money doesn't buy the happiness. And as someone that is financially independent, if you don't have hobbies and things that excite you outside of money, like, you know, just having a lot of money in your bank account, isn't going to, make you any happier. Not working isn't going to make you any happier. Like you need to find things that fulfill you um, and your life.
0: I love it. That's such a great answer. So this has been amazing, Robert. Tell everybody where they can go to find you online, where they can go to connect to The College Investor.
2: Yeah, so you can come to thecollegeinvestor.com or if you uh, don't like to read, you like to listen because you're listening to a podcast, you can find our audio show, The College Investor audio show on any podcast medium or we have our YouTube channel as well, at The College Investor and uh, we convert a lot of our content into cool animated videos.
0: Thanks so much for checking out this episode and a big thanks to our sponsors that make this show possible. Remember to subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. But before you leave, I want to empower you to embrace where you are today, the good and the not so good. And remember, nothing lasts forever. Just keep taking small steps every day and remember how awesome you truly are. Hey, you. Yes, you. Before you go,
1: we want to say thanks for listening to this episode of Millennial Money. For all the links, tags, and ads you've heard on today's episode, check out the show notes or go to mmoneypodcast.com where you'll find more episodes to share with your friends. While you're at it, leave us a review and make sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss out on all the money tips and tricks that will take you from a millennial regular to a millennial money expert. See you back here in a few days with a fresh new episode.